So I'm going to start with some discouraging news. Murder. Statistics on murder. In L.A. County, and these are statistics that were from about uh, five years ago. I don't want to go over statistics today. uh, Because around the nation, all the statistics in violence, murder, etc. are are much worse. And it's discouraging enough as it is just to look back for five years ago. But in L.A. County in 2015, there were 652 murders. Almost two per day. In California, there were almost 1,700 homicides in 2014. Nine dead every two days. Over four, four and a half almost per every, every day. You just don't realize the statistics and how heavy that is. In the United States in 2011, according to the Department of Justice, there were an estimated 14,610 persons who were killed. 40 every day. How's that for a cheery note, is it? <laughs> but it's depressing. And to get even worse, serial killers. Now, I'm not going to go into the statistics because we have some young ears here, but it's scary. You, you read the, uh, the top 25 list of uh, evil serial killers in the United States, and it's scary. Uh, you recognize the name Son of Sam? Well, he was number 25. The Hillside Stranglers, that was number 21, two men. Uh, the Night Stalker, he was number 13. And Jeffrey Dahmer, he was number 12 only. There's worse than him. Pretty scary. But, but why, what drives people to violence? What is it? Folks, it's anger. It's anger in the hearts because your thoughts go to, go to behavior eventually. And, and we have to understand this is not just for those out there. How many of you would admit that you struggle with anger in your own heart? I better see everyone raise their hands. (laughs) Isn't it funny that when Jesus is doing the Sermon on the Mount, in this portion of Scripture, when he's he's applying the law, but he's going to the heart of the law, the first thing he does is he goes to anger. Because we all struggle with it to some degree. Some worse than others. Uh, My my younger days very much uh, struggled with anger. And it showed on the soccer field. Uh, I was uh, an out-of-control man. But anger is a universal problem. It it affects you personally. Um, uh, Benjamin Franklin said this, anger is never without a reason. I always have a good reason, right? But it really isn't a good one. Seldom a good one is what he says. Because we we justify our reasons, but they're usually pretty self-oriented. It affects others. Our anger, your anger, affects others. It's never just you that suffers for it. It affects others. It's a relational sin. For example, in the spring of 1894, history is is littered with examples of what anger can do. But here's one. In 1894, the Baltimore Orioles came to Boston to play a routine baseball game. But what happened that day was anything but routine. The Orioles' John McGraw got into a fight with the Boston third baseman. Within minutes, all the players from both teams had joined in the fight. The warfare quickly spread to the grandstands. Among the fans, the conflict went from bad to worse. Someone set fire to the stands and the entire ballpark burned to the ground. Not only that, but the fire spread to 107 other Boston buildings. They got in a tussle during a a kid's game. Uh, We've seen that. You've heard, I used to be a Raiders fan when I was a kid and just heard about what happens at the Raiders games. 
but it happened at the Dodgers game out in the, in the parking lot, what, a few years ago, a homicide. It happens all around us. It can kill you, too. Anger can kill you. In the 18th century, uh, a British physician named John Hunter, who was a pioneer in the field of surgery and served as a surgeon to King George III, suffered from angina. Discovering that his attacks were often brought on by anger, Hunter lamented, My life is at the mercy of any scoundrel who chooses to put me in a passion. So who is he blaming his anger on? Somebody else. But aren't we good at that? Oh, yeah. I, I really struggle with anger, but you're pointing at somebody else. Blame shifters. But look what happens. These words prove prophetic. For at a meeting of the board of St. George's Hospital in London, Hunter got into a heated argument with another board member or members. He walked out and dropped dead in the next room. Oof. In today's passage, one that begins the series of six applications of what Jesus is talking about as he's going through the Sermon on the Mount, anger he deals with because that is something we all struggle with. But he goes to the heart level. And that was what was different about what, what Jesus was doing at this point. He starts with the heart, and here's the deal, just to get right to the point of it, we're all guilty. Since we're all guilty, let's listen to what he says that may help us. Would you like that? This, this God we just sang about who's, who's, who's full of what? Mercy and peace. He's there to cheer and to guide. Well, he has hope for us. And so we're going to go for that. We're going to look at what Jesus has to say. So in this passage, he really puts all of us in the crosshairs. This is not a passage that's, oh, that's interesting. I sure wish so-and-so heard it. It's actually for each one of us, including Chris Brunzio right here. He deals with the issue of heart issues. The context of this, again, just, uh, you know, I love this, but it's important. I I loved what uh, Pastor Bill spoke about this morning. You know, he really took us into the context, didn't he? He didn't just drop into Habakkuk and started reading. He gave us some of the background. Well, in the, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's chapter 5 through 7, you have to understand the context. It'll help us understand what's going on here. Besides being the greatest sermon ever delivered, what many call this, it's such a wonderful piece of literature, as many say, it's much more than that. So you've got to understand that when Jesus came on the scene, The context of the times was that there was a a serious hunger and longing for the promised Messiah to come. We hear a lot about this around Christmas time or even Easter. But we're in this now and we have to understand that there was just a hunger for God's promised one because Israel was under oppression. They were oppressed by the Romans, right? That's their political oppression. They weren't the independent nation that they were under David and Solomon. The glory days. And they longed for the the Messiah to come to restore that and make it even greater. They were under uh, uh, oppression, religious oppression. How's that? Well, the scribes and Pharisees. They had set up a a works-oriented religion that was just oppressive. You see Jesus constantly in his ministry uh, getting into conflict with the scribes and the Pharisees because they had foisted burdens on top of them. Paul confronting Peter later on about the whole issue about do we get circumcised or not. He says, Peter, what are you doing? You're trying to put a burden on the back of the Gentiles that we couldn't handle. You read that in Galatians. So they're under religious oppression. 
that the shepherds that were supposed to direct, the, direct Israel to God had, were really called sick shepherds. And Jesus said that he was the good shepherd, the one promised. Because in Ezekiel chapter 34, God condemns the shepherds of Israel of that time. But they were very much the same during Jesus' time. So they were under religious oppression. They needed their Messiah. They're also, when you see Jesus appear on the scene, if you read Matthew uh, chapter 4, we see them. he's confronting even demons. They're under another form of spiritual oppression. The demons were rampant at that time. And there was all sorts of diseases. They were bringing them to Jesus. And they were, here's the Messiah, the one who's healing diseases. Nothing could stop him. So there's a longing. Great crowds are following him because here's the man. There's this, is he the one? You read John, hey, are you, are you the one? They even asked John the Baptist, are you the one? He says, it's not me. Oh, there he is. When Jesus came towards him, what did he call him? The lamb that takes away the sins of the world. But there's a longing at this time. And so we have this whole scene set up. And then it says he went up on the mountain. Now, we don't catch this because we're not Jews of that time. But mountains in the Old Testament, what was associated with mountains? Whoa, remember Moses? Mount Sinai? What did he get there? The law. Okay, and he and Moses was in the middle of the Exodus, the great deliverance from the mightiest empire. I said this uh, last week when I preached on Psalm 103. You have to understand the Exodus to fully understand what Jesus did, because really it was treated as the second Exodus, the greater Exodus. Jesus was not Moses. He was the prophet that Moses says, watch out for him. He's the greater one. Follow him when he comes. So when Jesus went up to a mountain and he sat down to teach, the Jewish mind is They're already wondering, is he the Messiah, the promised one, the one Moses said, the great leader to come? So they're listening. If this is the Messiah, oh, he's going to restore Israel. There's an expectation. And then what he does is he begins to unfold. He actually says, my kingdom's a little bit different than you thought. Blessed are, right? We read the Beatitudes. Here's the ones that are blessed by God. What are they like? And he lays out these characteristics. That's not what they were expecting. It's shocking. And then verse, starting in verse 13, he starts saying, you know, uh, this is what my people are supposed to be. Verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Oh, they have a purpose there. Preserve flavor. In verse 14, you're the light of the world. You're supposed to shine brightly so they can see what God looks like. Why? Because I get that from verse 16. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who's in heaven. So he's saying they have a purpose This is my people will look like this. This is how you get into my kingdom. They will look like this because here's your purpose. And then he starts saying, look, I haven't come to abolish. He sets up a series of contrasts right away. I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it, bring it to completion. I'm the one. Uh, He says, I I come here, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The law is good, but I'm going to tell you how it's good. Because who had been their teachers? The scribes and the Pharisees. Matter of fact, he goes on to say this. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he is making it very clear. God's law is good and right and perfect. 
But he's going to go on to show that it's a little bit different than they have been taught. And that's what we're seeing the first contrast in talking about anger. But then listen to this. And this was shocking when they heard this. The context to hear him say this. For I tell you. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you're a Jew hearing him at that time, what are you thinking? Uh, I have no chance. Because who were the models of righteousness in Israel at that time? They were the religious leaders. They were the Pharisees, the scribes. But Jesus, when he starts confronting them, he shows that they have an external righteousness. But what about their hearts? Dead men's bones, decaying. Right? Whitewashed tombs. Read Matthew 22. Ooh-wee. 23. He, it's it's pretty, pretty clear what he thinks. He reveals them. But, but what he's doing here is he's going to start exposing our own hearts. So what's going on here in the context of this sermon? He's, here's the king saying, here's my kingdom. And when he said repent, because you look at chapter 4, he took up, after John the Baptist was, was arrested, he took up this ministry saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, if you're a Jew of that time, what did you already think? I'm in. I'm a Jew. Oh, the king is come. He's shocking them. So here they are longing for the Messiah, but he sits down and he starts unveiling this, and your, your world is rocked. And folks, it needs to be for us too. We need to remember, we need to enter into that so we can hear it. Because if we don't, what we do is we treat it as a historical event. Oh, wow, that's so interesting. But folks, we need to come under the microscope too, because the king is talking to us about his kingdom. And if we claim to be his people, his citizens, we have to understand this too. Right? And that's what we're looking at now. Okay, so that's the setting We have this Jesus just revealing things. He's moving from the externals to the internals. He's dealing with motivations, thoughts, desires, intentions. And what does it say about the word of God in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13? It's living and powerful, more active than any two-edged sword. I'm going to call it a scalpel. Why? It pierces down to the joints and marrow. Getting to divide them and doing what? Judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Does heart surgery on us? And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's doing heart surgery. And folks, that means we need to watch what the physician is telling us about our own hearts. That's what's going on here. He's exposing our hearts of anger. He's he's going to fulfill the law by showing that it goes after our hearts. It's not external obedience. Because you've got to remember, that was their model. How do we understand how to understand Scripture and and study it and then then obey it? Well, it was the Pharisees. That's that's who they learned from. Jesus is saying, well, let's, let's clarify some things here. He's looking to talk about a righteousness that, that comes from the heart, a God-given uh, heart, uh, a heart that's been reborn, renewed, so you can obey from the heart. He's not getting there yet, but he shocked them to start saying, well, what kind of righteous, how in the world can I do it? Ah, you can't. So you have to be in Christ to be able to do it. Where am I? Here we are. Matthew 5, let's get back into it now. And we're really going to focus on verses uh, 21 and 22 tonight. 
And then you'll have to come back uh, when I preach next and we'll do the second part. So the first part is dealing with our hearts of anger. We're exposed. But then the second part is now being reconcilers. See, in God's economy, it's not just, hey, stop being angry. When you when you want to when God wants you to change, He expects you to put on uh, put off the sin, but then put on the godliness. So if you see in this passage, it moves to reconcilers. That's what God calls us to be: not angry attackers, but reconciles who bring peace. You see that in Ephesians four, thirty one and thirty two. Put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, and uh, I'm forgetting one. Five forms of anger. Instead, be what? Kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving as God, as God in Christ forgave you. So it's always a put-off, put-on. But tonight, we're going to talk about the put-off. We need to really talk about it so we understand it. Because it's, it's, it's not going to just go away. Right? It's not something you just say, well, I'm a Christian now, and, I'm, and God's working on me. Well, he works on you, but he calls you to cooperate. <laughs> Do the work, too. Right? That's called sanctification, entering into his work. So here we go, Matthew 5, 21. Again, I'm going to read it again because we need to hear it. Having that background, hear what he's saying. You have heard that it was said to those of old, right? You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's right out of the Old Testament. That's the Ten Commandments. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, meaning the Sanhedrin, under judgment, condemned. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. (laughs) Did Jesus hold back anything here? (laughs) He didn't mince words, did he? So if you're offering your gift at the altar, that's worship, by the way. It's like going to church. He's basically saying, do what? If you remember that someone has something against you, stop your so-called worship and do what? Go and make things right. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Is this just some nice ideas Jesus expects you just to ponder gently? No, this is urgent. This is urgent. And for those of you who, like me, who this might be more of an area of weakness, anger in your heart, it's even more urgent because of what anger can do to you and to others and to the name of Christ. Don't, don't forget, the context of this is he said, you are to be a salt of the earth and a light to the world. And the very first thing he talks about as far as an example is your anger towards others, in yourself, but towards others. So this is a very big, it'll have a big testimony. Okay, so we had to deal with this urgently. What we need to notice first, because we're in the text... Jesus and his authority are at the heart of this issue. It's not because Chris Brunzeel's pointing it out to you. <laughs> Come on, Chris. Just get to the meat of it. You know, Jesus and grace and all that and mercy. And we have to let Jesus speak, right? And the first thing it says is that you have heard that it was said to those of old, right? But I say to you, okay, again, 
we're used to hearing it, but in the, when they first heard this, the, the Jewish people sitting there listening to him speak would be shocked. Who were their teachers? The Pharisees. Well, their way of debating and, and all that, the scribes too, is that they would not only talk about scripture, but they also talk about past rabbis, Pharisees. They talked about precedent. Well, so-and-so said this and so-and-so, and they would back up their statements. But Jesus didn't do that. I say to you, it's an authority issue. Matter of fact, when he's challenged by the religious leaders over the time, they always said this. Who do you think you are? By what authority do you say these things? And Jesus is saying, well, I've been sent by the father and whatever the father tells me to do, I do. He was claiming his own authority as directly from God. But here's the deal. The Messiah, their expectation is the Messiah would be a man of Torah, a man who obeyed God's word. And this Messiah would also know how to teach God's word. He wasn't just supposed to be a king with a a scepter and a sword. He also had to be able to handle the word of God because the Jewish king, the anointed one, always had to come under God's authority. That was just David, Solomon. They could never, they were never allowed to go take over the office of priest because that wasn't their God-given role. So when the Messiah was supposed to come, er, come he was supposed to be a man who, who followed God's laws. Now, he was much more than that. That's the that's part that gets shocking for them. But again, he, he's, he's claiming authority that would just shock them. He's handling and teaching and applying the Torah, the scriptures, and, and it was in direct contrast with the, the authority of the teachers of Israel. The, the, the reason this is a big deal is he, the, 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 uh, we talk about the Pharisees, and, we, and if you've read scripture at all, you'd see that, well, they'll, they'll mention the fathers or the traditions of the elders. We have to understand is that this group, the Pharisees, they kind of developed during the exile period. And their goal was to take the law of Moses... And protect it. Because so much of what was written around Moses' time, when you move forward a thousand years into the time of the exile, the years of silence, past that in the time of Malachi and, and, and into these 400 years before Christ, they wanted to make sure that the law was protected. And we do the same. Many commentators tell us that, you know, if you're a conservative Christian, we would have been a lot like the Pharisees because their goal originally was to protect the law and obey it precisely in the real living of life. That was their original goal. And what they did is they started setting up traditions on how to apply, how to live it out in such a way that would honor the the holiness of God's word. But the problem was, is over the years, The traditions became the law, almost. You had God's word, but then you had the traditions. And guess where all the conflict came up with the Pharisees? It was with the traditions, because the traditions became more important. Whenever you have another source of authority besides God's word, you get in trouble. Because guess where we usually focus on those other sources? We all have study Bibles. When your notes become more important than the text itself, we're in trouble. He's having problems. These Pharisees are there again. They're trying to guard guard and protect the holiness of the law and pass on the the traditions and show respect and reverence. But it was out of whack. 
But the problem was at that time is that these rabbis, they, they had, because it was Israel and, and God's word was even over, supposed to be over the king, well, those who taught and interpreted the word had high standing in the community. Rabbis, they were well-respected. Pharisees, they got honor. During, for instance, the weddings, they sat at the good places up front. So there's a problem in this society. I know some of this you've heard before, but just remember this is the context. So when Jesus is bringing up and saying, but I say to you, this was shocking. And there's Pharisees, scribes who were in the audience because they're all checking out this new guy. Is he the one? <laughs> Talk about just shaping, shaking people, people's minds to contradict them at all was to be outrageous. You didn't do it. Verse 17, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He has to say that. But to fulfill them, to, to make certain, to draw out the fullness of the law, getting to the heart of it, to unfold them, to embody them in living form, to help people understand them and obey them, to show the real kind of reverence. But I say to you, man, the audacity of this man. But that's what's happening here. Jesus defines righteousness, the righteousness that is greater than the Pharisees, one that people would have given up if they heard this. Well, I can't do that. No, he goes on to show them there's a different kind of righteousness. One that he can provide, but they have to, they have to stick with him. Jesus defines righteousness by expounding the true meaning of the law as opposed to the wrong or shallow understandings of it. He's presenting the definitive interpretation of the law. That's why the Pharisees, the scribes were so upset with him. He was challenging their place, their status, their prestige, their power. Oh, this rebel. Jesus is shaking, shaking things up. But here's the deal. Before we move to the next point, this Jesus isn't just an ancient teacher of 2,000 years ago. He claimed to be the true definer of scripture. So the question is, is he really your authority? Chris Brunzeal, is he really your authority, my authority? How do you measure that? Oh, yes, he is. Those are just words. So you know I do this to you, but you need to look inside. You need to judge your heart. Paul says to do that. Self-examine, right? You need to ask yourself, well, is he really my authority? Well, how do I know? What is the fruit of your life? Where's the obedience, right? This isn't to be a downer, but just to, we'll get to the good, good news in a moment, but we have to think through the tough stuff. Is he the true authority? I know you're here on a Sunday night and praise God for that. It's a good sign, but don't fool yourself if you're just going into religious rituals, well, I'm a good Christian. I go to church. I go to church twice on Sunday. There's nothing wrong with that. But when is it wrong? When it becomes pharisaical. Right? When it becomes, well, this is what I do. Look how good I am. Well, let's, let's help think through this. What areas of your life do you hold back from his scrutiny? Oh, have you ever heard of My Heart, Christ's Home? 
It's an old little pamphlet written by a guy, a pastor named Bob Munger. I met him, godly man. He wrote this back in the 60s. And he talks about Christ walking into the home, which is our hearts. And then he starts examining the rooms. He walks into our, our playroom. Ooh, what are we doing for recreation? Is it his? He goes into the study. What are we reading? What are we watching? Is it his? Oh, and then he goes to that, uh, that, that crawl space that we keep hidden. Ooh, is he allowed in? Now, I'm really <laughs> giving you such a bad description. It's really a great little pamphlet, but it really opens up uh, that, those areas. What am I holding back? Christ is Lord. Have you ever heard the expression, if he's not the Lord of all, he's not the Lord at all? I'm talking about in our personal lives, right? So the question here is, is, is he the authority? Will, will you hear him say, but I say to you? Because he's going to start getting into your, getting into your business. That's what he does. And I'm thankful for it. Because sin, hidden sin especially, destroys us. And it destroys people around us eventually. So that's the first thing we have to think about. The next thing, though, he starts giving us insight into the heart of man. And we talked about that a little bit. First of all, just so you know, Jesus did affirm the law. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He's quoting scripture, and he's right. He doesn't say that it's wrong. He goes after the shallow understanding of it. He he quotes from Exodus 20 and Leviticus 19. He doesn't say it was wrong, but now he's going to expand or deepen the meaning. Because God always goes after our heart. Proverbs 4.23, you maybe have heard this. Keep your heart with all diligence. Really look after your heart. Why? For from it flows the springs of life. Meaning, in your heart, into life. What you think will eventually come out in how you live. We call it the root fruit connection. We get that from Luke 6, 43 through 45. You know what? Turn there. It's such an important passage. Luke 6, 43 through 45. I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to because it's such a good passage. Folks, we're going to get to grace here. Don't, for, don't worry about that. We'll get to it. But we've got to confront ourselves first. We've got to let scripture dig because that's what Jesus is doing here. 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. I have an orange tree in my backyard. I know it's not a lemon tree because the little balls hanging there are orange. And when we cut them open, they taste like oranges. The fruit reveals the root. That's he's using something we all understand. As an illustration, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good now. okay, now he starts making this real. What was he illustrating all along? And he's going to tell us right now. Verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What's going on in here will come out. I can't tell what you're thinking, but give me some time with you or you with me. 
and I would be able to tell what you treasure. A month or so of seeing someone every day. That's why wives, husbands and wives, boy, do we know each other, don't we? Because we live with each other. We see our habits. We see what we treasure. What's going on in the heart? That's what God is after first. Now, is he concerned about the outer behavior as well? Of course. But if we only deal with the outer behavior, we're now Pharisees. Because they dealt, that's where they lived. Jesus wants our hearts, and that's what he's doing. He's doing some spiritual surgery for us to think. He's exposing that there's a root-fruit connection. There's a heart idolatry that goes on. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. I'm using these terms because that's how we have to see it. It's all about worship. The king wants our obedience, but he doesn't want external obedience. He wants obedience that flows from hearts that belong to him, hearts that are devoted to him. How many of you feel overwhelmed? There's no way you can do it. Okay, raise your hands, please. Because we can't on our own. We're not supposed to. That's his point. This is not a works-based religion where if we do it hard enough, we got, we're in. That's not what Christianity is. Again, I don't, I don't put aside the part where we are called to obey and called to, to keep in step with the Spirit, to borrow that phrase from Galatians 4.25. If you live in this or walk in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit is what Paul says. Cooperate with his work. Amen? So let's get back to this here. So he says, he, he's, he's affirming the law, and then, but he gives three examples in verse 22. And each one of them exposes an internal attitude, or these external actions that come from an internal attitude, and each one is severely condemned. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Look at, at verse 22. What is the last Phrase there will be liable to judgment. It's the same thing. He's saying, look, Ten Commandments, if you murder, you're liable, you're judged, you're guilty. He's saying, look, if you're just angry with your brother, you're under the same exact condemnation. Don't miss the severity. He's making this very clear. It's not just if you do an external action, it's if you're thinking it. Whoever insults his brother, oh my goodness. Have you ever insulted anyone? You guys are not very good at nodding or whatever. Some of you nod more. I want, you know I want feedback because I am. I've insulted people. And it was sinful and it was wrong. But what is God saying about that? I'm guilty before the court of law. That's the council. He's talking about the Sanhedrin there. That was the court. That was the Supreme Court. You're guilty before them. Wow. An insult? Come on. Jesus, you're being a little bit too harsh here. I don't think so. I think he's trying to make a point. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. It's really the Gehenna fire. That was that area just outside of Jerusalem's walls, a a kind of a little valley where they just throw the rubbish, and then they would keep it burning. And there was always that just this smoke going up, and it's where the, these worms that were a special type of worm, because he uses that phrase, it's the, where the worm never dies. But it's right out of this trash dump heap where things are just always being burned. 
So when he talks about the hell fire, he said, that's an example right there. It's just always burning. Yeah. He's going after our hearts. He's going after anger in the heart. Each one of these actions is lesser than murder, but when it gets the same condemnation. The punishments are roughly equal to what he said in verse 22 or 21. Each under God's scrutiny and God's judgment. Oh, that's this. This it scares me because when I first became a Christian, I knew that's what I struggled with. It wasn't a secret to me. But then I read this and I'm like, what do I do now? Folks, that's exactly the reaction we're supposed to have. Because I'm looking at a group of people who are not perfect. Saved by grace, we'll get to that in a little bit. But you're not perfect, nor am I. There's only one person who's perfect. That's Jesus Christ. And see, that's the point he's making here. And the people are supposed to be going, what is going on? Verse 17, where, or, we, or not verse 17, the last verse before, verse 20 says, Your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. That would make them give up hearing this. But thankfully they didn't walk away and they keep listening because he'll get to the good stuff in a little bit. But we need to hear this. We need to soak up a little bit of this to, to realize, wait, my heart's not as good as I like, it to make it, like to make it out to be. We need to be introspective. We need to self-confront. We need to think through, okay, how's my heart doing? And folks, you know, the Puritans, I love the Puritans' uh, name for Christians. You know what they're called? Repenters. We need to be repenting every day. The cross, oh, it used to be over there. It's not up here anymore. Where'd it go? <laughs> but the cross of Christ, folks, is not just for salvation. We spent a lot of time, I teach a class on Sunday mornings, biblical counseling. We talked about that this morning. How the cross is meant to be for every day. See, the cross... The gospel is not just to save us. The, the cross is actually where Christ brings our hope for sanctification, for daily living. See, when we sin as a Christian, we don't have to repent all over again to get saved, but we need to keep repenting because our sin gets in the way of our relationship with God and with others. We need to be repenters. But the cross should give us hope because he said it's finished. And he said that that's where we get the power, the grace upon grace, the power to save. But the power of that helps us keep changing and growing. There's passages that talk about Christians who are not just saved, but who are being saved. We, we need to, to let his word in, just, in, just invade our hearts. And, and there's a time, there's an appropriate place for gloom. We'll look at that in James 4 later. When we repent, if we've been rebellious, pridefully unrepentant, there's a place for gloom and misery. Because that's a sign of what? Real godly repentance. Paul makes a big difference in, in 2 Corinthians. There's a worldly grief and there's a godly grief. What's the difference? Repentance. There should be a godly grief over our sins. We need to let this just kind of saturate ourselves a little bit and think it through. Because it makes the grace of God in Christ Jesus, his mercy, oh, so much more beautiful. 
And we, we rejoice more. He who is forgiven much, rejoices much, right? So let's, we, we're I'm kind of sitting there for a little bit, but yeah, we just see that God is just, he just, he, he doesn't let us get away with this stuff because if, we, if he did, it would just ruin us. Sin ruins us. So God's getting after our hearts and there's an urgency here. These are severe warnings. So I'm going to take a little side, side note here. What kind of anger is he talking about? Is there such thing as a righteous anger? The answer is yes. Jesus was righteously angry. How do we know? Well, a couple places it says so, but one example is he went after the marketplace up there on the temple. It was supposed to be a place of worship. They turned it a place of, of selling things and, and extorting people and stealing their money, essentially. Oh, he was ticked. But it was a righteous anger. Now, can we be righteously angry? And by the way, it says, it says that every day God is angry at sin. All right. But, but can we be righteously angry? I would say, yes, you can. When God's law is broken and people are hurt, there can be a righteous anger. But Ephesians 4, 26, in your anger, do not sin. Oh, so you can have a, an anger that's, that's righteous to a degree. But then he says, in your anger, do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger. So even if it's a righteous anger, you have to, I call it, rein it in. Why? Because that anger, because we are imperfect, God's perfect, and he, he holds all of his attributes in perfect balance. So if he's angry, it's always perfectly and appropriate because he knows what was done, and he knows the intensity that it should be dealt with, and he knows how to deal with it. We don't. But if there's a righteous anger on our part, we have to rein it in because it can control us. I used to play soccer angry. I mean, like crazy angry. And I had extra energy because of it. I got rewarded for it. It's like gives you extra adrenaline. It starts feeding. Oh, but it also destroys. It destroys. So he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And then he says, what? Why? Lest you give Satan an opportunity. Because it opens the door for all sorts of destructiveness. I'm not talking about possession, but I'm talking about the, the harm he could do to you and to your friends, to the church. Anger destroys. We have to take this serious, right? But there is a righteous anger, but even then we have to rein it in. But what is anger? Is anger in itself sinful? I already talked about it. It's not. It's just a, it's a God-given emotion that, that motivates us to correct something wrong, to correct an injustice. That's all it is. We just, it can just get so out of control so quickly. So when does it become sinful? When it becomes selfishly motivated. When Jesus was angry, he was angry because God's name was being defamed by what they were doing at the temple. When I get angry, 99.999% of the times, it's because I'm not getting what I want. Anyone identify with that? That guy just cut me off. Who does he think he is? How many of you struggle driving? <laughs> we talked about that earlier today. Me too. It's self, when it's selfishly motivated, that's sin. When God's goal in the situation is distorted. 
So God, God is in control. And when his situation, when his goals are distorted, like for instance, you know, I remember in the eighties, I heard about this more. I don't know how much it's happening now. I'm sure if it was, if it happened to be in the news more, but what, the abortion clinics, we had people protesting, nothing wrong with that, allowed to do that in the United States, but it's how you protest that God is concerned about. But then when you go to the degree of being so angry that you kill an abortion doctor, do you think God's goals are being distorted? Yeah. Yeah. Folks, and we have all sorts of examples in our society right now. There's a lot of opinions about what to do with COVID and the masks and or not. And do you think it's got a little bit out of control from both sides? I'm talking about Christians on both sides of the spectrum. Do you think it's gotten out of control? Be honest. It has. We have not done a good job. Of course, over all the years, our sin gets out of control. But right now, that's just a good, good thing to think about because you all have opportunities to talk about it and to talk about others who have a different view than you. Just be careful. It's okay to have opinions, but be very careful how, how we interact and think through about what to do and what to say, especially about our government. What are we supposed to do as Christians as far as proactively towards our government? We're praying for those in authority. We are commanded to. And, I, and I, I'm guilty too. Please hear that. Just of, of struggling with that. But that comes from a heart of anger. And if Jesus says I have a heart of ang- anger, what is he also telling me? I'm a murderer. Oh. That's what he says here. Whoever murders is liable to judgment. Then he says if you're angry with your brother, if you insult your brother, if you call someone a fool... What is it? You get the same, you're saying he's got the same kind of a heart. You just haven't given full expression to it. That's all. Ooh, that's heart surgery, isn't it? But where there's you, do you want a doctor who can, who can dig into you to get that cancer out? That's down there deep. We want him to do that kind of heart surgery in our hearts when there's that sin that's so down, down inside there. Do you want him to do chemo on you? I need it because sin is a cancer. And the deeper it is, the harder it is to get rid of. Right? That's what he's doing here. But he's saying that anger, it's, it's in the, if you also, I talked about this earlier, but when, when anger is allowed to linger, that's when it becomes sinful. And then you, anger is sinful when it attacks the person and not the problem. Have you ever struggled with that where you said, well, you did this and you're the, when the issue was over here, but you attack the person. Has that ever worked out, by the way, when you do that? It sure doesn't, does it, right? Well, that's a that's sign that it's sin. So what you have to do is the way, the way to start moving out of this is we'll look more at this next week, but we have to be honest about your anger. You have to be honest about your motivation, right? It usually it starts like this, and we see this in James 4. Matter of fact, let's go to James 4. James is towards the back of the New Testament, right before, right after Hebrews, before Peter. James 4, starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? How come there's war? Good question, right? He gives the answer. Is it not this? Verse 2. That your passions, I'm still in verse 1, excuse me. Is it not this, that your passions, your wants, are at war within you? So what is it that causes the conflicts with other people? He's saying it actually starts within you. It's the passions, the wants, the desires in your own heart that are out of control. 
You desire and don't have, so you murder. You want something. And so you murder? Wait, is that kind of what Jesus is talking about? It's a heart issue. You covet and can't obtain. Oh, I, I, yeah, that's right. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. You, wrong, you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. He's going after our hearts. There's a war in our hearts. And that's the war we have to fight. That's the war we have to acknowledge. When there's conflicts, the first thing to do is not say, well, they did this. The first thing to say is, it's, it's, it's probably in me. <laughs> Matter of fact, it's, I got to look at me. What causes the conflicts among you, amongst people? Is it not the passions that were within you? See what he's doing there? We have to be honest about our anger. We have to look this way. None of this, uh, I can't help it, it's just the way I am. And remember, Jesus wants me just the way I am, just as you are. Does he want you just as you are? At salvation, he'll take you, but it's not to stay that way, is it? He says, no, we're on a process of changing and growing. We have the wonderful promise in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So praise God for that. But we have all these commands for Christians to get in the fight, to participate with the spirit. And folks, it's a hard fight, isn't it? Because sin doesn't go away. I took, Pastor Bill talked about that. Boy, we want Jesus to come back, don't we? I'm tired of me and my heart. But as long as we're here, we fight on. We fight on. There's so much more to say here. But I, I, I will, I, he, I'll just say this. He wants us to deal with our hearts, but then he gives us the grace that we need. Everyone go to Titus 2. Titus 2, verse 11. Titus is just after Timothy. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God, oh my goodness, we love hearing about God's grace, right? Grace and mercy, both sides of that coin. Grace is God's gift to us, something that we don't deserve nor earn. Mercy is when he holds back that which we deserve and have earned, right? So the grace of God has appeared. So this is good. This is now we're getting positive. Thank you, Chris, for getting to the positive. It's been a downer all along. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Amen. Right? We, we have that. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God that no one may boast. Oh, praise God for his salvation. But this grace doesn't stop there. Grace is still active. How do I know? Look at the next verse. It says it's bringing salvation for all people. Now it does this. Training us to do what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And instead to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's called putting off and putting on. That's sanctification. That's what God's grace is doing. So God's grace saves us, but it's not, that's not the end of the story. We get his grace to help us change and grow. It's a training regimen, though. 
It's like the spirit. I, lo- I, can't, I guess, no, I had that background. It was a long time ago in sports. And our coach, oh, he was, I loved the man. He was in my wedding. So when I say this, I'm not disparaging him, but I hated him. Why? Because he would kill us. He would work us so hard. Hell week, we're four workouts each day. Six to seven, breakfast. Nine to 10.30. And this is, this is at Biola. So in the 80s, I mean, there's smog. And we're playing in 95 degree weather. Third stage smog alerts. At lunch, you'd have lunch. And you'd run to your room to take a cold shower because you couldn't breathe. Ever been, had been in smog running a lot where you're like... <laughs> I'd hop in a cold shower, so it'd shock me to breathe again. And then, then we had the afternoon practice, or then we'd have evening meetings and practice at times. He would kill us. He would make practices so hard we couldn't wait for games. Ah, do you think that was his point? He killed us. But you know what? We were good because of it. But that's the picture here. God is going to work us out And guess where the hardest parts are? Trials. But what do you come out on the other side of after trials? Stronger. The worse the trial, the stronger you can become. Because God's that's one of God's goals. James, you all know James 1, right? Consider it all joy when you encounter what? Trials of various kinds. Why? Because it produces character, which produces perseverance. And it has a perfect result in you. Character building, that's what he's doing. In Romans 8, 28 and 29, and he works all things. He doesn't call things good, but he says that he's working all things together, including the bad, to do what? To conform us to the image of Christ. I know I skipped over part of the verse, but I'm getting to the point there. The good that he's working is to be Christ-like. So the trials he puts us through is to make us more like Jesus. That's pretty good. Because who's the most eternally wonderful, perfect person In all the universe, it's Jesus Christ. I don't want to be a better Chris. I want to be more like Jesus. That's what he's doing in us. And that's the grace he gives us. So when we look at this topic of anger and we feel maybe a little condemned, or if you're thinking this, well, it's not really my issue. It probably is at some degree. And I don't want to discourage you, but we need to call it what it is. It's it's insidious and it ruins our lives and it hurts others and it defames the name of God. And because of that, we have to take it seriously. But he gives us grace to overcome. So we're going to talk about that more the next time I preach. And we'll look at part two. But folks, ask this of yourselves. Have I come under his authority? When I say that, I'm like, ouch. There's areas I don't like giving over to him. Anything else? Do an ouch? You should. Because we're pretty good at being independent. But have you come under his authority in all areas of your life? Or can you spot, you know what, if I'm honest with myself, I know I don't act godly in this area. In my responses to my spouse, in my responses to my kids, in my responses to my boss, in my responses on my taxes, on my responses to others about the president or the governor or this mandate or that. And I'm not pointing at you. I'm including me in this. Please hear that. Is he your authority over all these areas? Something we have to ask ourselves. Then the second part is how do you, how would you deal? How would you look at the anger in your own heart? Are you a murderer? If you struggle with anger, 
Jesus says you have a heart of a murderer. You just haven't been given opportunity to fully express it yet. And by God's grace, we aren't, right? And we've got to fight. We have to keep, keep serious watch over our hearts. Keep watch with all diligence, Proverbs 4.23. Because that heart will lead to a life. But by the grace of God, he can be working on this tree and the roots. And that real worship can come out in loving him and obeying him by the grace that he gives us and the strength to get forward, right? There's no temptation that's overtaken you except that is common to man. Anger is a common struggle in all of its forms. But God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with that temptation, he will do what? Provide a way of escape that you may endure. As long as he has you in that trial, he'll give you the strength if you want to obey him. If you want to obey him by his power for his glory, he'll give you the strength. and He'll be glorified. You'll be the light that shows people there's a God who truly transforms us in the real practical realities of life. How great would it be that Christians could dialogue about the different ends of the spectrum, about responses to the government, all this, but in a way that is gracious? Wouldn't that be great? Because it would be a big contrast to what we see going on in the world. That's just an example. But I think even more important is how we deal with each other in the church, right? Because is there ever a conflict in the church? Sure there are. We're a bunch of sinners. Saved by grace, but a bunch of sinners who struggle. So let's take this to heart. And let's glorify him more. Amen? And let's live under his grace, by his grace, for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time tonight in your word. Thank you, Jesus, for, well, for doing the hard surgery on us. Heart surgery, that is hard to hear. But it's good, and it exposes the things that need to be fixed. We can't walk around pretending we're all good when our hearts are cancerous with sin, and we just need you to work in us to, to do that surgery. And Lord, that we would help others in all this too. If, we, if someone's struggling, that we'd come alongside them and help them when they're ensnared in a sin, that, 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 that cancer that's inside them. And Lord, that we would help them uh, walk in your spirit and, and come under your word. And Lord, when it comes to anger, this is uh, just rampant in our culture, in, in our world even more so, just feels so out of control right now. So Lord, help us to not be influenced by the world, but but to come under your word, for you to do heart surgery, for us to to respond and, and to walk in godliness, to see you transform our lives, to be people in the process of change, so that we would look different in how we live. We would look different in how we respond. And that we would be just mirrors to reflect your glory to this world. Thank you, God, for the hope you give us. And we just pray that you be glorified in our daily lives as a collective church in this community. So thank you, God. We just praise you and give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.